the Beatles had this chant, John, Paul and George, and probably then Stuart and Pete had this chant when things weren't going well, which in their world wasn't very often because mostly it was an upward trajectory, but nonetheless, sometimes you know, they would have a bad night or the gig would, you know, didn't work properly or the amps broke or whatever. I say, where are we going, fellas? And they'd go, to the top, Johnny. And I'd say, where's that, fellas? And they say, to the topmost of the poppermost. And I'd say, right. And we'd all sort of cheer up. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah. Where are we going, fellas? To the, to the top. top. What top? To the to very, very top. top. They had this chant, and John would say, where are we going, fellas? And the others, in an American accent, and the others would say, to the top, Johnny. Get the exact wording right. Um, where's that, fellas? To the toppermost of the poppermost, Johnny. <laughs> and that was their rallying call in when times were bad to kind of yes you know we're still here we're still together a lot of irony in it as well it was kind of done in a heavy american accent as a sender welcome to our alien overlords who are visiting us uh, in their ufos these last few weeks this name of this show is toppermost of the poppermost i am ed chen from when they was fab I'm Kid O'Toole from Talk More Talk. And I'm Martin Quibell from Pods Like Us. So we have reached March of 1963. The Beatles are joined by another Liverpool band, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Tell us a little bit about Jerry, Martin. So the group were originally formed in 1956 by Jerry with his brother Fred, Les Chadwick and Arthur McMahon. And in 1958, the then-named Jerry Marsden Skiffle Group were playing around the same sort of circuit as the Quarrymen, who, as we well know, would become the Beatles, during which time they kept bumping into each other and they built up a friendly rivalry. In 1959, they saw the changing musical landscape from Skiffle to rock and roll and would become known as Jerry Marsden and the Mars Bars. However... That is a name of, of a confectionery in the UK, Mars Bars. I believe a Mars Bar in America is what we call a Milky Way in the UK, I think. But anyway, the Mars Company, who own that, complained, and they ended up having to change their name to Jerry and the Pacemakers. Now, that's not Pacemakers as in the heart aid. Jerry had heard them uh, in a football, a soccer match, on television, talk about one player being the pacemaker of the group, and it's like, oh, well, that's a good name. Well, it sort of goes, doesn't it? Because it's a bit like Beatles with a beat. Pacemakers is keeping the pace of the music, I suppose. In 1961, the band went to Hamburg in Germany, where they had a residency at the Top Ten Club, where they would play a grueling 7.45-minute set per night and base these sets around more than 200 cover versions. How many bands do we think would actually know that much material nowadays? It depends on how close they decided to come in the versions. I mean, I think most bands could sort of fake 200 covers, you know, get kind of close. We obviously don't have any tapes of this, so I would assume that Jerry was probably pretty good at that. They were winning Liverpool top group well before the Beatles did. And he has a very well-rounded voice as well, Jerry, which would sort of like fit a large variety of types of music as well, I would have thought. So there was one evening when both the Beatles and Jerry were playing together, and Jerry and John decided to go off to a house of ill repute. Uh-oh. Yes. Jerry and John walked in. There are a couple different versions of this. In one version, they walked in and they didn't have enough money, so they had to leave and then come back, and then leave and come back, and they had enough money to go in like two or three weeks later. But anyway, whenever they finally got into this, well, it's a whorehouse, to put it bluntly. Yep. Put our cards on the table here. Yeah, exactly. So so they came in, they they got some drinks, you know, the, the way one does in such places, and the compare, the gentleman up front said would you like to see some of our young ladies and, you know they look at each other ha 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 yeah let's let, let's see what's gonna happen <laughs> and well he brings out the single largest woman that jerry or john had ever seen oh jeez yep and i love what jerry says that they called her. jerry described her as 
being a boss with a bra. (laughs) (laughs) Not holding anything back. (laughs) (laughs) So the Beatles and Pacemakers were actually pretty good friends at this point in time. Yeah, well, they would carry on to be, wouldn't they? But from all accounts, by the time they actually sort of started getting in the charts, March of 63, both of their careers were taking off. And in fact, there was serious question as to who was going to be more successful between the two groups. The Beatles had already been signed to Brian, hadn't they? And well, according to Jerry, they ended up signing because of their friendship with the Beatles. Brian took the pacemakers on as well because he wanted the top bands in the area. We came back from Hamburg and the Beatles had been there and they had just come back. And I went down the cavern and Brian was there. And he said, hello, Jerry. I said, hello, Brian. What are you doing here? He said, oh, I think I found my forte. I want to be involved in this music. I said, good lad. He said, now, Jerry, I've just signed the Beatles. I said, I've gone. You've signed the Beatles. You, you, record seller signing the Beatles. He said, I think I can get them a record deal. I said, really? He said, yes, and I'd like to sign you. I said, yes, please, God. Please, Jesus, sign me anything yeah, to get a record. And he got us the record deal as the same as he got the Beatles. And that's how I first met Brian. Uh, or as a manager, and then we just became dear friends. Brian was a lovely, lovely guy. And there's one other story from about that time. Ringo wasn't quite sure what he was going to do. I mean, he'd gone off to Germany and actually spent a residency in Tony Sheridan's band until there were some flooding which caused him to come back home. When he came back home, amongst the offers he had was to become the new bass player for the Pacemakers. Yep, this is fascinating. Wow. This is, yeah, courtesy of our friend uh, David Bedford, who, of course, is researcher par excellence. And, yeah, that apparently uh, Jerry Marsden asked Ringo to join the Pacemakers as a bass player. And, uh, of course, a little problem was... <laughs> Ringo, Ringo didn't know how to play the bass. Yeah, but he said back then, though, that wasn't really important. Think about Stu Sutcliffe when yep. John wanted Stu to join the band. And, hey, can you play bass? No? Oh, you know, you can learn. In those early days, there was a fifth ruttle, Lepo, a friend of Nasty's from art college, who mainly used to stand at the back. He couldn't play the guitar, but he knew how to have a good time. And in Hamburg, that was more important. I think they actually loaned Ringo a bass to just see if he could get his hands around it. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't play bass. It was too hard for him. That may well be why Ringo said that in early 1970. It's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Yep. <laughs> Although apparently he did consider it before he went back. It was only the fact that Rory got the Butlins gig that Ringo said, okay, fine, I'm coming back. Right, okay. What could have been? The infamous Butlins gig. So Brian ended up getting Jerry and the Pacemakers signed to a record deal with Columbia Records, who were a sister label to Parlophone, who the Beatles had been signed with, and both Columbia and Parlophone were and still are subsidiaries, essentially, of EMI. Now, George Martin produced the record, The Pacemakers, How Do You Do It? In early 1963, Martin was having great success with another Liverpool act, Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yes. So I guess he wasn't exclusive to Parlophone. That's a very Mm -hmm. good point. But since they are related record companies and the related to EMI, essentially he can work for any of those labels if EMI asked him to. It's just a little bit funny. And then the other thing that I find funny is that you know Mitch Murray had said to the Beatles version, no, I don't like that. No. I'm not going to let them record it. Right. Anyway, I just found it funny because the pacemakers were clearly going off of the Beatles demo as a model. I mean, yeah, they changed it up a little bit. It went a little bit more sweet again. But in general, I would say they are playing the arrangement that John and Paul came up with, which is the same arrangement that Mitch Murray said, ain't no way, I don't like that. It's interesting. I wrote a piece about the Beatles version in my Deep Beatles column years ago, and I mentioned that it's really an example of the Beatles' early ear for hooks and all because they did change some of the phrasing and for knowing a hook and 
yeah, as you said, Jerry and the Pacemakers pretty much followed that. Except I think Jerry and the Pacemakers didn't do some of the backing vocals that the Beatles did. I think like the ooh-la-la, as I recall, I don't think Jerry and the Pacemakers did that. But in the demo for How Do You Do It, there was the line, like an arrow just passed through it. You give me a feeling in my heart Like an arrow had just passed through it I suppose that you think you're very smart But won't you tell me how do you do it? Beatles edited the line How do you do what you do to me? I'm feeling blue Wish I knew how you do it to me But I have no clue And, you know, there were some little changes like that that don't sound major, but they did make it sound better, a little poppier, and just shows early on how they had that instinct. The original demo was very much a Paul Anka sort of record. Yes. How do you do what you do to me? I wish I knew. And the Beatles put a little bit of Buddy Holly into it. Mm Mm-hmm. And then that sort of crept over into the Pacemakers version. Although, I mean, Jerry, again, as opposed to John Lennon, has a voice more in that pop, M.O.R. sort of mode. Exactly. Thank you very, very much indeed. And hello from us. It is nice to be playing in Sweden. And it's wonderful. Let's do a little number, which is our very first record. Which you do hope you like and know. I'll sing it. It's called, uh, how'd you do it? How do you do what you do to me? I wish I knew If I knew how you do it to me I'd do it to you How do you do what you do to me? I am feeling blue Wish I knew how you do it to me But I haven't a We're going to talk a lot more about the Pacemakers because, well, we're going to have a year of Beatles versus Pacemakers. Yeah, I mean, they really did have that battle for a time. Yeah, who was most popular? We will have plenty more tales, but before we leave the Pacemakers for this show, Kit wanted to talk a little bit about her encounter with Jerry at the Fest. Yes, I was fortunate enough to meet Jerry Marsden. He appeared at the Chicago Fest for Beatle fans in 2007. And really one of the most memorable Fest experiences I had was first seeing him. He did an unplugged kind of concert there. How do you do what you do to me? I'm feeling blue. How should you, how you do it to me? He had just him and his acoustic guitar, and he sang and talked about, you know, some of their biggest hits. And seeing him just sitting there and performing, you know, Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying, Fairy Cross the Mersey, 
just him and the guitar was truly one of the most memorable experiences. And, and I'll tell you, hearing him doing that in such an intimate setting, I mean, when he did Don't Let the Sun Catch You Crying, I got a bit for, for clumped, you know, <laughs> as, I, as I heard him do. I mean, I really did. Now I'm getting a little verklempt. <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. I got to meet him. He was there signing autographs. I mean, I was thrilled. I love Jerry and the Pacemakers. So I was standing in line to meet Jerry for the first time. And I was standing in line, got a, some shout outs here uh, with some people that many listeners may know. Susan Ryan, Tina Kukla, who, Ed, you probably met at uh, the Chicago Fest. Yeah, yeah, uh, I did. Yep. And Al Sussman. Uh, who somehow got dragged into standing in line with us. I don't remember why, because he had met Jerry many times. And Susan and Tina and I were rather excited about meeting Jerry. I love Jerry's voice. You know, and they did so many classic songs. And I think I brought uh, Jerry the Pacemaker's Greatest Hits LP for him to sign. So by the time we got up there, I mean, we were pretty stoked. <laughs> and so... I go up there and I'm like, oh, Mr. Marsden, I'm so excited to meet you. And, you know, would it be possible to get a picture with you? And I'm going to apologize to any Liverpoolian fans out there right now because I'm going to do a very bad impersonation. Okay. <laughs> so I apologize right now. He said it, he was so sweet. He looked at me and he said, sure, sit on my lap, love. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> And he said, sit on my lap, love. <laughs> now, let me just say, this was completely innocent. He was a very sweet man. So I just said, okay. And so I sat just on his knee and everything. Now, at this time, I had just gotten my doctorate in education at Northern Illinois University just like a few months before. And so for some reason, Susan and Tina decided this would be a great time to kind of roast me. <laughs> so, so they're taking my picture and saying, so doctor, which side would you, know, how do you want to roast doctor? What side would you like doctor? And Jerry is looking at all of us like we're crazy, you know, and I'm saying, ah, oh, Jerry, don't, don't pay any attention to them. Just, just don't worry about it. You know, and I'm thinking <sighs> I'm going to kill you guys later. So they <laughs> took the picture. Then I take pictures of them and Al just looks like he just wants to sink in a hole. I mean, you know, so we're leaving and by pure accident, Susan, Tina and I turn around simultaneously and say, Bye, Jerry. And like the, just the <laughs> girliest voices. I mean, pure accident. And again, Al just looks like, why the hell did I come here? I just want to leave. I don't know these women. Oh. I mean, it was hilarious. But Jerry couldn't have been nicer just so gracious to fans. I'm just lucky I got to meet him. He probably thought I was crazy, but <laughs> really, I just feel so fortunate that I got to meet him. So two more things before we go off into the charts. I'm glad to hear that Jerry still had his musical chops and still was in shape by that time. Yep. Uh, there are a couple of recorded instances, uh, one of Jerry doing a live set with an anonymous bunch of pacemakers, you know, not the real pacemakers. Eh, pretty average. And then for KTEL Records, Jerry did an album called uh, The Lennon McCartney Songbook. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's KTEL Records. So, I mean, people in the States know what that is. I didn't even know that they KTEL had a British arm, but I guess oh, they yeah. did. Yeah. But. Anyway, it's available on Apple Music. Sample a song or two, but, well, it ain't that good. And, you know, I, I, I don't blame Jerry for it. I blame whoever was producing this thing. Terribly produced.
I'm sure we're going to do at least one more feature on the Pacemakers as, as things go along. The Pacemakers, actually, their first three singles would all rise to number one, to give you a little spoiler here. You consider that Love Me Do was nowhere near number one. Yeah, the Pacemakers were riding on the Beatles' coattails just a little bit, but still, you know, they had the goods. Absolutely. Oh, and incidentally, the set he did at that fest, the Unplugged set in 2007, it is on YouTube. Now, it's fan shot, so don't expect great sound quality. But it is okay. up there. Very so good. Check it out. The story I wanted to tell comes out of Tune In. October the 19th, 1961, at the Litherland Town Hall, the Beatles and Jerry and the Pacemakers got together and formed a super group they called the Beatmakers. The Beatles were already kind of upset because they had extended their set from. 45 minutes to a full hour and weren't going to pay them anymore. Wow. They had decided to be a little bit unprofessional and kind of gotten drunk before they showed up. Uh, the ori- Originally, it was supposed to be an hour from the Beatles and an hour from the pacemakers. Jerry showed up, saw the state they were in. Oh, I better catch up. <laughs> <laughs> and so he went, around, he went around the corner and got himself overserved, as your mother would say. Yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and Jerry came back. So the three of them put their heads together. Hey, we'll just play together. (laughs) We'll do both sets as as one giant band. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Well, and and so taking tip of the hand from what they did in Hamburg, they all sort of changed clothes. Jerry wore George's leather jacket. George wore a hood. Where George found a hood, I don't know. (laughs) I was going to say, what? Paul wore a nightdress from... Mother Marsden, Mother Marsden had had given it to Jerry and the boys to protect the drums, so it was just sitting there, and Paul put it on. Sure, as you would. Uh, John decided to play the saxophone, so <laughs> he pulled Les McGuire saxophone, and we don't know how it sounded, but he at least tried to play it. <laughs> Probably as good as George's violin. <laughs> That's right. Freddie somewhere somehow found a uh, railman's outfit, you know. A little bit of Thomas the Tank Engine there. (laughs) There was only one drum kit, so Freddie and Pete Best, they each played one drum each. I don't know, that might have improved Pete's playing. Oh! (laughs) Ouch! Ooh, watch out for that knife, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about our friend from Liddypool. He he won't appreciate that comment. (laughs) He is a Pete Best fan, but... Oh, dear. (laughs) So Bob Wooler's comment was, uh, they exploded out on an an astonished crowd with a sound bigger than the guns of Navarone. (laughs) And years later, John would remember this gig fondly. It's like, oh, you know, that's one of the reasons he said, oh, we were at our best in the, the, the clubs in Liverpool and in Hamburg, because we could do whatever we want. I, you know, he, he didn't necessarily remember it was the pacemakers, but it's like, yeah, I remember there was a night when there were like three bands and we all went up on stage together, which had to be this evening. Yep. <laughs> well, John's memory when he's had a few beers isn't always the best. True. So that remains one of my favorite stories, actually some of my favorite stories. But, you know, we'll get back to Jerry and the Pacemakers. As I say, we will probably do at least a feature on them somewhere along the way. Another one. So, All right. So we want to move on to our advertisement for this month. Once again, we are being sponsored by our friends at the Magical Mystery Camp. The FabFo have announced the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. Partnering with RPM Music School and Music Matters Collective, the FabFo, including Will Lee, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty will be joining you for three days and nights in celebration of the music of the Beatles at this special event. Now, one of the members of that faculty is our good friend Walter Everett. You know, we have to throw in a plug for him. He, he has done a lot for the Beatles community, and he is one of the great Beatles scholars. Sure is. has written some incredible books, so he's very knowledgeable. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and so much more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument 
If you're a music lover, then bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends and couples alike. Registration is open and spots are already filling up, so register soon. All right. If you're going to it, it should be a very good time. For sure. That is definitely going to be an experience you will never forget. All right. So we're going to start with the British charts for the week of March the 7th. At number one, once again, was our old friend Frank Ifield with Wayward Wind. And I guess the sound of the outward bound made me a slave to my wandering ways on the wayward wind. Is a restless wind. You can never get away from him. He's our buddy. As to this song, you know, it was an old standard. Other than Frank, Patsy Cline, Sam Cooke, and the Everly Brothers all did it. And the Beatles actually did it early on in their Liverpool shows. Indeed. And also, I feel it was a yodeler. And yodeling seemed to be a bit of a popular sound at this time. We're going to meet another yodeler later on in the charts. So, okay, at, at number two was another old friend of ours from these last few months, Cliff Richard with Summer Holiday. We, we found a, a nice little quote from Cliff Richard's bio, The Dreamer. John Lennon was very funny and asked me to delay releasing my next single to give their follow-up to Please Please Me a chance. I asked them, what's that going to be? He answered, we don't know yet, but we've got one song that we quite like. <laughs> what could that be? It may have been for me to you. I, I don't know if it was necessarily written. But I, of course, you know, who knows? This is Cliff Richard's memory. No telling whether it's a true story or not. <laughs> it also doesn't sound like something he would have just made up. Right. No. So that story is relevant because at number three was Please Please Me. It's gone there quick. It took six weeks, but here it is at number three. Yes, indeed. Going up, 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 up. Number 19 was the a record that we spoke of before, uh, the next time in Bachelor Boy. From the same movie as the title song we just mentioned, Summer Holiday. Yeah. Cliff Richard again. Uh, mm-hmm. And then at number 25... The Shadows were there with Foot Tapper, which was also from Summer Holiday. Cliff's backing band. Cliff uh, Connections. It's not Apache. No, which is interesting because somebody's got a story about that, haven't they? Apache was one of the songs that found its way into Beetle Bop, better known to us these days as Cry for a Shadow. Yep. Now, I've heard a couple different versions of this story. What George said was that John was sitting around and he'd just gotten the Rickenbacker, which had the whammy bar on it, the wobble bar on it. So, you know, he just started playing and playing with that, and George joined him, and that's how the song came about. They did do a pretty good job of imitating the shadow sound. Now, the other version of this story that I've heard was that the record prior to this record had come out while they were in Hamburg, and they wanted to know what it sounded like, so they had uh, somebody at NIMS sing it to them down the phone. Between the singing and the how does it go, it turned out to be a completely different song. Huh. Sounding nothing like the Shadow song. <laughs> Interesting. And then at number 32 was My Little Girl from the Crickets, which we've spoken of before. Not a great song. No. Great band. They can definitely play, but boy, lyrically, you miss Buddy. The week of March the 14th, at number two was Please Please Me, so it moved up one slot. This would be the highest that it actually would reach on the British charts. 
the official British charts, it did reach number one on Melody Maker, I believe, and, and some of the other charts. Yep. Yeah, it gets really confusing. There are all these different charts. Because, yeah, I mean, it did reach number one on those other charts, so it depends which one you're looking at. That then is part of this question of, you know, how did they do as opposed to Jerry and who was the bigger band at that time? And that would really be the case throughout all of 63 to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. At number 32 was a record that Martin and I both liked a lot, uh, Buddy Holly's cover of uh, Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. Which version do you prefer, Ed? I actually prefer Buddy's version, but the interesting thing about this is, and it's something that I never quite realized, that this was actually one of Buddy's earliest professional recordings. Wow. They they pulled it back out of mothballs. Uh, You know, he'd recorded it, and they kind of hadn't done anything with it. And then after the day the music died, this was one of the recordings that, that... they went and got the fireballs to do some overdubs on. I thought this was just Buddy and the Crickets and that for whatever reason it just didn't come out, that it had just sat in the can and and that they hadn't released it. And reading through stories for this show, it's like, oh, they actually got the fireballs to overdub on this. Right. And, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Exactly. I really like Buddy's vocal on this. So do I. I'm kind of undecided about the Fireballs backing. I like the Fireballs playing. I just feel at times it overwhelms Buddy's voice. It may be the mixing. His voice sounds great. I really like his vocals on this. Really strong. And again, just shows what a versatile vocalist Buddy Holly was. But yeah, I just feel at times the Fireballs kind of overpower him a bit. But as you said, because they were overdubbed, that's why. Well, and if you listen to something like Peggy Sue Got Married, they are really, really strongly to the fore. I mean, in part because we're talking about uh, something that Buddy recorded in his apartment. Exactly. They, they did exactly the same thing with Simon and Garfunkel's Sound of Silence, didn't they, where they took the original version, which was just Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, and for the single release, they overdubbed studio session musicians over the top. But in that version, in that way, that worked, though, for the Simon and Garfunkel song because it worked with the song, whereas this one, like you said, it sort of overpowers what's there with buddy yeah we're gonna find a time to do uh, a spotlight on buddy somewhere in here but the posthumous album in the uk did quite a bit better than it did here in the states buddy was more of an icon almost over there than he was over here yeah which is kind of amazing to think but yeah it does seem like he charted more frequently the uk after his death yeah at number 39 was our feature for the week How Do You Do It, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the second of the Brian Epstein, George Martin hits. It was winding his way up the charts. And, you know, you can definitely see why George Martin first wanted the Beatles to record it, because it does have every indication that it would be a hit. It's catchy. You can see it. But I can also see why the Beatles didn't want to record it. I mean, they did record it, of course, but it is very poppy. And I'm not saying this in any way in a negative sense, but I think it did suit during the pacemakers better. I think the Beatles version would have done certainly at least as well, if not better than Love Me Do. I don't know if it would have been a number one hit. but No, I don't you know, think so. Had that been the record that came out in October of 62, that changes a lot of other things. But it's just strictly going on chart position. Mm-hmm. 
it's enough of a hit sounding single and the Beatles carried enough charisma that they could have carried it at least as far as Love Me Do went. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. interesting because the trajectory of the Beatles might have been different. Did we touch on this for February, actually? I think we briefly did. Just sort of sum it up uh, in, in a couple sentences here. Yep. I think, how do you do it? If that would have been the single, I think it would have changed what happened after that because they ended up doing uh, Love Me Do instead as the first single. That gave them the ability to then release songs that they'd written themselves as singles, whereas I think if they'd have started with a cover version as the first single and it would have been a hit, the record company might have pushed them more to do cover versions and less of their own songs. That is such a good point, because when they were offered How Do You Do It and the Beatles recorded it, but ultimately rejected it, that was so unusual for a band to do at that time, and particularly a new band like the Beatles. I mean, you know, I think George Martin was shocked when they turned it down. I mean, bands did not do that. I mean, it was unusual for a lot of bands to even write their own material. So absolutely, if they had agreed to do this and record it and it became a hit, yeah, I think that's true. I think that would have changed the trajectory. I think they probably would have been recording cover versions. It might have nudged it, but I will play the other role here. George Martin was a good enough A&R man that if that had made John Lennon determined enough to say, we're not going to do this again and come back with please, please me the way he did, it's really please, please me that turned everything around for the Beatles. And not so much turned everything around. I mean, obviously they were signed artists and their first record went to the top 20. You can't complain about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not saying they never would have recorded their own compositions, but I think maybe not as quickly as they did. Maybe not, but maybe so. We can't change history, but even if the Beatles' How You Do It had come out, as I said, I don't think it would have been a number one hit. It could have conceivably gone as high as the top ten. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. A little bit better than Love Me Do. And while George Martin might take that as a sign as, I'm going to go look for some other songs, if John Lennon comes back with the Please Please Me, That puts the train back on track, as it were. Interesting to think about. All right. At number 43, a song, it's one of those songs that you actually know, but you may not recognize from the name or the artist. The End of the World by Skeeter Davis. has kind of a tenuous Beatles connection, but it's an important song overall. It's a country song that, as you said, you know it. You may not know it by the name or artist, but believe me, you've heard it. It's a song that was one of the early crossover country records, and it was produced by someone familiar to all of us, Chet Atkins, who, of course, George Harrison was a big fan of and big influence on his guitar playing. And this is a perfect example of the Nashville sound. And the Nashville sound was kind of a response to the rock and roll sound. Younger people, particularly now, were turning toward that. Rock and roll was taking over and cutting into country sales. So the Nashville sound is basically taking the twang out of country and smoothing it out and making it more of a pop sound, making the voice the center of the record, adding strings. Think Patsy Cline. She became the center of the Nashville sound. But Skeeter Davis really became another big name of the Nashville sound. And she was really one of the earliest female country singers. Really, up until this time, male singers 
dominated country music. So Skeeter Davis was enormous uh, influence on Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton. I mean, you know, all the singers you can think of. But Chet Atkins was the architect of this Nashville sound. And End of the World is like the theme song of this movement. The key to the Nashville sound were the studio session musicians and background vocalists who became collectively known as the A-Team. Chet Atkins and Owen Bradley used the A-Team on virtually all of their recordings. As many as four songs could be cut during each three-hour recording session. It was Nashville's version of production line pop. Chet Atkins loved the song enough that they had it played at his funeral. That's so. right. And it's a beautiful song. Skeeter Davis uh, had just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous voice. And it was a massive hit, uh, both in, in the UK and the US. And as I said, one of the big country crossover record so it was very notable song in terms of a landmark record for women in country music but also that nashville sound and really changing the sound of country music and it's certainly likely the beatles heard it one of the points of this record is that during the last verse it starts to slow down mm-hmm the tempo just starts getting a little bit slower and a little bit slower, and it's a trick that the Beatles would then use on Rubber Soul for weight. And that was an interesting observation, because I hadn't really made that connection, but it's true. That tempo does change very subtly. The story on the Beatles side was that the various speed wasn't working quite right, and then they said keep it. But you could also say that even if it wasn't intentional, it's like, oh, well, they did it on that record in 63. Let's keep it in. Yep. <laughs> Just one more thing about it. I love how Chet Atkins described the Nashville sound when he was asked about making it pop and all. said, I wasn't trying to change the business, just sell records. <laughs> there you go. So honesty from Chet there. At number 44, we have Jerry Lee Lewis still on the charts doing a cover of Good Golly, Miss Molly. A very almost countryish cover of Good Golly, Miss Molly. It's halfway between Little Richards and almost this country sound we were just talking about. It's good, but it's hard to top Little Richard. It's nowhere near as good as Little Richard's record. No. You took the words out of my mouth. I think he actually was trying to do a, a good cover of it. I think he was being respectful. I think this came out not long before Jerry Lewis's career would end at Sun Records. And I'm assuming part of it was due to um, his interesting private life. <laughs> yeah. Married to his cousin. Yes. So, thirteen-year-old mm -hmm. yeah. cousin was it? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. That didn't go down very well in the UK. No, no, and it didn't in the US either. Most places in the US. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Beatle-wise, we know that certainly all of them were big fans of Jerry Lee. Ringo, in particular, uh, Ringo mentioned it at his Hall of Fame induction, and he also did a couple of duets with Jerry Lee. Roll over Beethoven off the album Mean Old Man, and Sweet Little Sixteen from Jerry Lee Lewis duets. Hmm. Right. A couple Chuck Berry songs there, not Jerry Lee Lewis originals, but Ringo might have had some trouble going along with a whole lot of shaking going on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next week, the 21st of March, Please Please Me was at number five. How You Do It was still rising. It was at number 20 this week. Yep. At number 31, our old friend... Uh, Tommy Rowe, the folk singer. And at this point, the Beatles were on the road with Tommy Rowe. Yep. Definitely a song that was trying to tap into the pop folk trend that would eventually start to transition into folk rock. But this is definitely more in the folk pop kind of realm. Then the Tornadoes were at both position number 32. Robot.
good video as well. <laughs> Kid has managed to find a video from Robot. Robot. Wow. Yeah, check it out on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to give it away too much, but you'll never forget it. <laughs> you'll be having nightmares for weeks. Yes. You're welcome, by the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, at number 33, the tornadoes with Globetrotter. We've got a quote here from the tornadoes from July 13th, 1963. When we cut Telstar, did the Americans say, what a great British sound? No, they didn't. They just said, we like the sound of the tornadoes. It's their own sound. Well, this is what I'm saying about the Beatles and all the other Liverpool groups. That's why we're talking about Jerry. You know, it's those Liverpool groups. The Beatles and all those other Liverpool groups that have made it big. It's not a special mercy beat, rhythm and blues, or big beat. It's a special sound belonging to the group that thought of it. And good luck to them. It's different, new, and exciting. That's kind of an interesting quote. Yes. Number 44 was uh, the Everly Brothers, So It Will Always Be Me. a nice track it's very much in the everly brothers style yeah it's their standard yeah beautiful harmonies like the reverb effect um their guitars just beautiful that's something i've always thought with the everly brothers that's not picked up on because of their harmonies but how incredibly their two guitars sync with each other as well in the recordings absolutely that isn't picked up on enough because i mean their harmonies are just so gorgeous that you tend to focus on that more, you know, and they come straight out of the country tradition. So they bring that to their uh, pop rock kind of sound. And so I think maybe it's that country kind of sound that they bring on their guitars and uh, just makes it even better. <laughs> Essentially, they're sort of doing what a lot of bands would do at a later time where some people if they've not got a 12-string guitar, they would build up the guitar sound by double-tracking. But essentially, mm -hmm. the two brothers are doing that, but they're both playing separate guitars at the same time. So it's almost doing that same trick to get that mm. big sound. Can you forgive me one more At number 46 is Can You Forgive Me by Carl Denver and the Carl Denver Trio. You know, we've discussed them before. They were sort of the British end of the folk boom. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that they appeared with the Beatles quite frequently. Another yodeler. <laughs> second yodeler. That's the, the one I was teasing earlier. Okay, there you go. <laughs> oh, I mean, just shortly after this, Carl Denver or the Carl Denver Trio would, would be on the radio twice with the Beatles on Side by Side in May and June of 63. And then the next year, they would be on TV with them on Shindig. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah, they would cross paths several times. It's a little bit strange from the perspective of the present day to think of the Carl Denver trio being on Shindig, you know? Yeah. The Beatles will be back later with some songs they've never sung on television before, including one which John Lennon and Paul McCartney have just written and has never been heard anywhere until tonight. How about that for a first on Shindig for tonight? Now, here is unquestionably the most popular folk singer in all of Europe, Mr. Carl Denver.
was very interesting. I mean, they really had a variety of acts. And they were servicing what was on the charts, obviously. Mm -hmm. And once again, talked about it many times, the variety of songs, the different genres, but that will change. And it already is starting. We're at two now. Mm -hmm. It's going to be three and four and five. And by the end of the year, you won't be able to escape them. That's right. (laughs) All right. For the week of March the 28th, Please Please Me was still in the top ten. It was at number seven. And how do you do it? Keeps creeping up. It's all the way up to number 10 now. Yes. Then at number 37 was uh, Don't Set Me Free by uh, Ray Charles. Big favorite of the Beatles. Overlooked gem of a song. I think that's a great song. Me too. I, I, love I that really song. like this too. Ray Charles could practically sing the phone book and it would sound here just like, yeah, this is, you know, but I agree. This one in particular has a nice blues kind of jazz feel, a little gospel thrown in for good measure. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. His range on this song is incredible. You know, what he's doing vocally on there and the whole feel of it, it's amazing. I agree. I don't know how I missed this one. I don't think I'd heard this before. And Wow. I think the first time I heard this was in the Ray film. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I haven't seen that. I've got to see mm, that. It's a very good film. Uh, on a local note, Ray Charles actually spent a number of years living here in Houston. Ah. So. Very nice. You, you probably walked All past right. him without even knowing it. I wasn't around yet, so oh, okay. my, my dad no, might have. Okay. The University of Houston campus is very much around the area where Ray Charles would have lived. He was a frequent guest on KCOH. Inside KCOH's iconic Looking Glass studio along Almeida, you can see the sun setting in the Third Ward as cars with beaming headlights pass by. Listeners recall watching DJ Skipper Lee Frazier through the Looking Glass studio mixing music with go-go dancers doing kicks. It's also in that iconic studio that Ray Charles met one of his wives. Which is just down the street from the University of Houston. Anyway, gotcha. the song of Ray Charles's, which would be most associated with the Beatles, is What Did I Say? The famous story there is before Ringo actually joined the band, on one of those incidents when Pete was sick, which we're not supposed to talk about. Yep. <laughs> you know, Ringo sat in, and they went into What Did I Say? And the three of them turned around and said, he can play it. Because, you know, yep. that little rhythm is not easy for a drummer to do. And there was Ringo just, you know, Okay. No rehearsal, no nothing. He got it. Ringo's shuffle beat is fantastic. <laughs> yes, indeed. Also on the charts was the Springfields. Dusty Springfield. It really shows you what range stylistically the Dusty Springfield had. The song title was Say I Won't Be There. All is folk and country, which you obviously don't immediately think of when you think of Dusty Springfield. And yet here it is with her group previous going solo with her brother, Tom, as sort of the songwriter. And just fascinating to hear something like this. We didn't know this side of her. We're used to the big voice and we're not used to Dusty harmonizing, essentially, as a, as a, as a du- duo essentially. Here, we tend to think of her as, you know, blue-eyed soul and kind of sultry. So hearing her like this, you know, harmonizing, and as I said, the song is very, like, country folk. Fascinating to hear her in this setting. Yeah, it's almost like, if we're going to go for something contemporary, say the White Stripes. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm. it's a completely different type of music, but the brother-sister harmonizing thing. Oh, and she she did have some hits on this side of the pond as well. 
Although yes. we probably didn't know that she was that Beatle girl. <laughs> you look at the Beatles on Ready, Steady, Go, and it was always Dusty that was coming along and doing the interviews with them. Right. Very bubbly, always having fun. Yep. And the Beatles uh, were definitely uh, admiring of her appearance, I yes. think. <laughs> Please ask Paul if he plucks his well-shaped eyebrows. I think he might. Um, Do you? No. You know, and it doesn't look so... No, they're perfectly natural girls. They're absolutely beautiful. Paul, do you mind girls screaming all through your act? Uh, no, really, I, we like them screaming, generally, all of us. But uh, it's a bit much all the way through. Yeah. But we love them screaming. Yeah, yeah. John, uh, this is a question which you've probably been asked a thousand times before, but you always, all of you give different versions of different answers. So you've got to tell me now, how did the Beatles get their name? Uh, I just thought of it. You just thought of it? Another brilliant Beatles. <laughs> no, no, really. Were they called anything else before? Prince they called the uh, Quarry Men. Oh, you rugged character. Yeah, they always looked very kind of flirty around her. It was, it was cute. Well, that's the end of our hour, so we still have half a show to go. Yes, indeed. Side B, as we like to call it, of our journey through the charts. We'll take a little hint from Ray Charles. What did I say, part two? On our way out the door for this show, uh, we do want to mention that the Fest for Beatles fans, New York, New Jersey, is coming up. Indeed it is. It is uh, March 31st uh, through April 2nd. It's in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey at the Hyatt Regency on the Hudson. Sorry, I have to do it. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. It's uh, going to be uh, quite a weekend full of speakers, some uh, discussions. There will be a uh, flea market. There's going to be a bit of everything. I'm going to be there. Hope to see you all there. One of our favorite Beatle wives, Patty Boyd, is uh, leading up the charge for the fest guests this year. Yes, indeed. She'll be there. Uh, Mark Lewison, our our favorite uh, Beatles historian, will be giving a presentation there. So that's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be a lot more live music this year, I believe, than in previous years. They're adding a lot more Friday nights. So if you love live music, this is the event for you. Not to mention the folks under the stairs. And the people under the stairs, which technically is, is really the people in the lounge. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> and, and the premiere of our Toppermost of the Poppermost merch. We're really excited about this. We have, drumroll, drumroll, t-shirts. And they're really, really fun. I think you're going to enjoy them. They have a really kind of a sense of humor. So we're really excited about the premiere of our merch. I will have them at my author table. So uh, so come and see me. I can't remember uh, if it's like the seventh or eighth floor, something like that. You, you, you won't miss it. It's uh, the author floor. It's right, usually right near the Apple Jam stage. So come see me at my author table. I will be selling uh, the T-shirts. They're $20 a piece, money well spent, because you will be able to show off your fandom of our show and, uh, and a, as I said, a, a great nod to your, in general, your Beatles fandom. All right, so uh, be on the lookout for side two, part two, side B, whatever you want to call it of March 1963 coming your way real soon now. I didn't say a single thing there. There was a piece in the NME, a news piece, that said that Top Rank Records, remember when Top Rank had a record label? Yeah, they introduced an LP series next week that will be called Toppermost. And it's coinciding with their current advertising slogan, Toppermost of the Poppermost. Yes, I thought, they got it from somewhere. They saw that, they must have seen that in either the NME or Record Mirror or Disc, Record and Show Mirror as it was then. And they've taken it from there. They've obviously thought, how stupid that is. 
how stupid is it's one of those phrases that someone an older person who doesn't understand teenagers comes up with a slogan that they think is going to be the hip slogan of the month top of most of the poppermost